Prayer starts this week. We have five days of prayer at 6 a.m. here in the sanctuary. Uh, you can join us online at your house on YouTube or Facebook. But I challenge you to make a sacrifice, an hour or two hours of sleep, to seek the presence and the face of God. We're going to pray. We're going to seek God's presence. We're going to seek answers to prayer. We're going to seek God to move in our church and our families and our community. There's a prayer guide that's available in the Church Center app that you can download that kind of walks you through the entire week. And then Friday night will end with all night prayer. It's going to be a very, very powerful week. So I challenge you. I usually, don't, I usually invite you. I'm challenging you to be a part of prayer this week. Uh, a lot of good stuff going on. A lot of things are changing in our world. And so as you've noticed, COVID-19, the Delta variant has been going crazy throughout the, the summer. And now with school picking up, we believe it's going to pick up even more. So I want to give you kind of an update and clarify to you kind of how we have made a decision to lead our church, me and the elders. And we kind of talked this out with the staff and other people. And our, our elders are incredible. If you don't know them, you know them, Dr. Wayne Stanley and Aiden Batson and Ray Sartain, and we're adding some more that we'll announce in the fall. But uh, they are an incredible gift to this church and this community. And so we've come up with some, some language that we've been using to filter decisions through because we're not making decisions as reactions. We make decisions that are proactive based on what we believe God is speaking and sharing with us. And so I will say this. Let's talk to Dr. Jimmy Shaw this week and Pastor Dylan Davis. That, and I told them this principle that leaders never make the right choice, right? So if you think you make a right choice, somebody thinks you've made a wrong choice. In this day and age, 50% of the people are going to think it was the wrong choice. So leaders don't make the right choice, they make the best choice at the time, right? So that's kind of the, the filter. And there's three philosophies we've used uh, since the beginning of COVID to kind of navigate this thing. And so we are a people of faith. What that means is we are going to spread hope, not fear. We're not going to be part of the fear-mongering, the fear porn that's out there that's trying to control you and control us by speaking fear. That means we look at this as an opportunity for the gospel to advance and move forward. We look at this as the opportunity to, to minister to more people online than we ever have before. An opportunity to, to serve more people at the Dream Center than we've ever served before. An opportunity for our faith to grow and rise. So we are people of faith. Secondly, we are people of honor. We are people of honor. It's very clear in Scripture. Honor is a primary principle of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to honor our government and the request until that causes us to dishonor God, His Word, and His mission. Meaning we're going to honor, last year we shut down to honor Governor Ivey's request, but we're not going to keep moving because the politics of the time keep moving. We're going to honor the government, but not at the expense of the kingdom of heaven. And we have a king to serve. He has a word. He has decrees. He has declares. And that is our primary focus, while at the same time trying to honor that. And then thirdly, we are a community. We, we are people of love. We are going to encourage everyone to exercise their personal freedoms. Like you all have personal freedoms in America. Also as Christians, you have amazing personal freedoms. But Paul was clear, make sure you are accountable and responsible with exercising your freedoms. So that's our three filters. We filter every decision we COVID through. And explain that, uh, kind of this last one, that we encourage your personal freedoms, but not at the expense of, of other people's personal freedoms or encouraging accountability and responsibility. What that means is, if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your freedom to choose so. But just think about how that affects the people you're around or you interact with. Right? So think about if somebody has a child who has a, a, a cystic fibrosis, for example. Think about what that communicates to them because your witness is more important than your freedoms. Right? So I have personally got the vaccine. My wife has not. 
I got the vaccine not because I, I thought I, I really needed it. I have a healthy distrust of the government, probably an unhealthy trust of the government in most forms and fashions. But I also, also as a pastor and a leader, feel like it's not about what freedoms I can exercise. It's about how well I lead and take care of the people I'm called to lead. And so I set aside my freedoms in order to pastor the people God has called me to pastor better and sit more safely than I could without the vaccine. Does that mean I'm encouraging you to get the vaccine? No, I'm encouraging you to pray about it and ask God what He wants you to do personally. And quit letting the news and political turmoil express to you what you think God is saying. God is not speaking through His prophets right now. He's speaking through His Word and speaking through you. And until you're in prayer, you're never going to hear His voice. And the enemy is trying to divide and conquer right now. And God is trying to gather and consolidate and unify. You have to decide which side you're going to be on. The divided side or the united side. And you unite in love and in purpose and in spirit and in mission. And so that's where we're kind of, that's how we filter and navigate. We have a whole thing of that on our website. And so we don't know what the future holds. We just know our mission is going to continue. It may look differently through times, but we're moving forward. We are advancing God's purpose here in the shoals, here on earth as it is in heaven. So with all that being said, what a great intro. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2 as we continue our family series. Uh, one thing, uh, Bobby Klingon last week for preaching a great message on family and raising a next generation of kids. Uh, it's a powerful message for all of us uh, with kids because there's nothing more difficult than raising kids in 2021. Um, so I don't know about you, but it, it becomes difficult when you travel with your kids and across countries. Last week we were in Auburn. We traveled four hours with three teenagers in the car. You would think it'd become easier to travel with teenagers than it would be little kids. When they're little, you can just give them some Benadryl and it's smooth sailing. Like I'm going to be a toy drive. Like, do you remember like getting gas? And this is going to explain your age a little bit. When you pull up to the gas tank, you're empty. And you're at the gas station. And you would try to gather some quarters and nickels and dimes to go pay gas. You can't even do that. Now when you start to pump gas, it looks like a casino going off with that thing spinning. But you know what happens? When your car runs out of gas, it doesn't function like it's supposed to. Like when it, runs, it gets empty, it doesn't perform like it's supposed to perform. It doesn't run or operate like it's supposed to operate. Same thing with your phone. When that battery goes dead, it doesn't operate the way it's supposed to. Or if you're my wife, it doesn't operate the way it's supposed to anyway. We're driving to Auburn. She has an iPhone 12 Pro Max, right? iPhone 12. We're trying to travel to Auburn, which is in the middle of nowhere, going, I have her put the GPS in so we can use the, the car for all the other sounds. And it's all confusing. She's like, well, I don't know which way to go. She's using Google Maps on an iPhone. I said, well, put Apple Maps in. She said, I can't. I said, why not? She said, I deleted it. So you delete an Apple app from an Apple phone to put an Android app on an Apple phone. Why don't you just get an Android phone? I like it. I like my phone. You obviously don't. Then she said, the next day I said, hey, will you text so-and-so? And she says, well, I'm driving. I can't text. I said, well, tell Siri to text them. She said, I can't. I disabled Siri from my phone. I said, so you literally have the world's most expensive Android device on planet Earth. <laughs> but you know what? If, if the battery goes dead, it doesn't do any of those things. 
So when the charge goes dead, it doesn't function, doesn't operate, it doesn't even turn on. Same way with our marriages. When your marriage gets empty, it doesn't mean it's broken. It just means it doesn't have what it needs to function the way it's supposed to function. When the battery goes dead in your marriage, it doesn't mean you need to get a new battery. It means you may just need to charge it up a little bit. Or maybe it's run out of gas. It doesn't mean you need to trade in your car. It just means maybe, just maybe you need to put the right things in it to get it to function and operate correctly. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm going to have you hold your Bibles in the air. So we are a Word and Spirit church. Last week we were at church in Auburn. You don't have to stand up. I know we do that every week. I'm, I'm changing the game up. Some of that's because I went to the gym this week and I can't stand up anyway, so I'm sore. But we're at um, Auburn Community Church. That's where Alicia's been visiting. She wanted to see it. And so we go, and so I figured it'd be a, a youthful, kind of younger generation, trendy church. And I didn't have my Bible with me. So we go in, and the pastor literally said, Hey, raise your, your Bibles up, hold your Bibles up. And almost every single person in that room had a paper Bible in their hand, except for me and my wife and Phil Wigginton, because he was there. And I was like, I'm the pastor. I don't have. And I thought, what amazing is this that a whole generation of students at Auburn University are carrying around a paper Bible to let people know who they're following. And I want to start that here. If we're going to be a Word and Spirit church, I just want you to hold your Bible up real quick. Just so everybody knows who you're following, whose voice is guiding you, who's leading you. Thank you. You can set it down. Next week, everybody will have it. John chapter 2, verse 1. This is where Jesus' his first miracle Uh, This is the very first miracle he performed, the first sign he performs. It says this, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Everybody say wedding. He was at a wedding. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited. Everybody say invited. He was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, everybody say the wine. Wine in scripture is very symbolic for joy. It represents joy, it represents a happiness, it represents all these things. So when the joy had ran out, when the joy had ran out, she said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. Everybody say fill. Fill the jars with water. Not wine, but water. And they filled them up to the brim or overflowing. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now, or kept the joy until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray in these next just few moments that you encourage every single person in this room. Those who are married, you encourage them, you challenge them to fill their marriage up to overflow. Father, those who are single, you give them the tools and the the knowledge they need, the wisdom they need to prepare themselves for the marriage they're going to have that's going to display your glory and model healthy marriage here on earth. And Father, transform us and change us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 
So Jesus at a wedding or at a marriage, and the joy or the wine had ran out. So to understand what the wedding was like in the first century, there was three phases to every wedding ceremony. The first is betrothal. Betrothal is like the engagement period that may last from childhood into teenage years. And when you were betrothed or engaged, it was just like being married, meaning you almost had to have a divorce decree in order to break off the engagement. So Mary and Joseph were betrothed, not married, when she became pregnant with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So you have betrothal. Then you have, once they get ready to get married, there's processional. The processional is the week of the wedding, the the, uh, groom and his party, his family, would literally at nighttime walk with torches through the village to the bride's home. Sounds like a riot. Sounds like it's not the most joyful occasion for the bride and her family. A bunch of people showing up with blowtorches. So they're there. They knock on the door. The bride and her family come out, and they march through the village to a feast or banquet. And the banquet lasts seven days. It would start with a ceremony. It would start with a celebration. And it would last throughout the seven days in order to celebrate this union between man, woman, and God. And so what's interesting is Jesus decides to begin his ministry at a wedding. When you read the Bible, you realize that the Bible actually begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Genesis 2, there's a marriage. Revelation 21, there's a marriage between the lamb and his church. And so the Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. And Jesus, right smack in the middle, begins his ministry with a marriage. What that means to me is marriage is probably very, 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 very important to God. And what we're seeing is marriage isn't as important to us as it is God. God lifts it up in this whole process of the wedding here in the Bible. You see this, this high value upon marriage in the Bible, but yet we look at it as a Disney movie rather than a holy matrimony. And in losing the value, we lose the effort that's needed to make sure it works correctly. In the next few moments, I want to I dive into the Scripture to help you kind of see how to turn your marriage around. Because Jesus had some old pots that were used for Jewish purification, meaning washing their hands or their feet before they ate. They ran out of wine or ran out of joy, meaning there was no longer any joy left in this marriage or at this wedding. The, the, the master of feast says, but you know, most people use up the joy at the beginning, but you've saved the best for last. And I do a lot of weddings, and what seems like there's a whole lot of joy at the beginning of the marriage. But the joy begins to wane. One year, two years in, maybe a week in, it starts to wane. 20 years, 30 years, and it begins to wane because you drank up all the joy at the beginning, and now there's no joy left at the end. But God is the God who saves the best for last, meaning you should start with joy, and you should have more joy at the end of your marriage than you did at your wedding day. He said, listen, there's some old pots there. And he took the old pots and created new wine. Meaning, to get new wine, he didn't have to go get new pots. Meaning, you can have a new marriage with the same spouse. Just because this one doesn't seem to be working, it may not be your spouse's fault. It may be that you're empty of joy. And when you're empty of joy, you think everything is broken. When you're empty of joy, you think it's the vessel's fault, not the content's fault. When you realize you can pour into the vessels instead of trading the vessels in, it changes everything. When the car runs out of gas, you don't take it to Long Lewis and trade it in. 
When your iPhone runs out of battery, you don't take it to T-Mobile, AT&T, or Verizon and say, this thing's broken, give me a new one. But in life, as soon as our marriages run out of joy, we start looking for a new spouse to bring joy into our lives. When in reality, God is saying, no, no, no. If you would just pour in the right things, I can bless it and turn it into something newer than you had before. When you realize that it may not be broken, it may just be empty, and you have the ability to pour in. And you see, they invited Jesus to their wedding. Maybe, just maybe, what you have in your marriage is not being blessed because you haven't invited Jesus into it. Yeah, the pastor is at the wedding. Yeah, we, we go to church. But if you're not letting Jesus into the nitty-gritty of it, he can't bless it. If you're hiding some things from Jesus, he can't bless it. He has to be invited. He's not going to push his way into your marriage. He has to be invited in. And when you invite him in, he can bless it. And those six pots were a little bit bigger than this. And he said, I want you to go. They're empty. I want you to go fill them up with water, not wine. So water is a very natural, reoccurring substance that anybody can get easy to come by. He said, I want you to get it. I want you to fill it up over the brim so that it's more than full. Can you tell me about a water, somebody? Years ago, I was on staff at a church. There was a youth pastor that was kind of under me, and he came in to my office one day, and he said a, a really foul thing. And I said, whoa, 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 bro. What, what, are you, what are you talking about? He was talking about his wife. They'd had a fight, and he was just extremely mad and angry. So I said, come on. We put him in the car, Beat a couple other pastors, took him to lunch. He's like, well, she doesn't do this, she doesn't do this. And I was like, whoa. So one of the other pastors took a bottle of water. He said, see this cap? That's your marriage. He said, and this water is God. And when God pours in, he said, whatever flows out of that, that's your ministry. He said, the only ministry you can have is what God has poured into your marriage and overflows into your kids, into your church, and anybody else. If there's no overflow, there is no ministry. And we have too many people who are trying to do ministry with no flow. And what happens is people try to pour joy out of their marriage, but you can't draw joy out. You can't draw wine out if you haven't filled it up. So could you imagine disciples? They take these, these jugs to Jesus. They said, okay, bless it. He said, well, I did, but you didn't put anything in there. He said, pour some water into overflow. Then he blessed it. Then he said, now you can draw some wine out. You can't draw joy out of a marriage you have not poured into. And what it kills me is people will spend more time pouring into Facebook and Instagram and social media than they will into their marriage, and then they complain about their marriage. Well, it's just joyless. We haven't been in love in years. Well, maybe because you're in love with social media, you're not in love with your wife. You cannot draw joy out of something you haven't poured into. And when you pour into it, you give God something to bless, and God still blesses marriages. You have to give God something to bless. So what are you pouring in to these stone pots for Jesus to bless? It's just real quick. This is a very quick-hitting sermon. There's six pots. There's six things. One, if you want to see God bless your marriage, keep your marriage full to the brim of honor and respect. Keep your marriage full of honor and respect. Once it starts getting empty, people start getting shifty. 
So you got to keep it full of honor and respect. One person said this way, marriage thrives in a climate of mutual love, honor, and respect. What that means is men and women both thrive in a marriage with honor and respect. Women, more than anything, want to feel honored and protected. What that means is they want to feel like they're the number one priority in your life. As men, they want to know that you will take care of them, you'll protect them, you'll keep them secure, you'll provide for them, you would die for them. That's Ephesians 5. You'll lay down your life for them. Too many men will lay down their life for their jobs, but not their spouses. Too many men will lay down their life for their hobbies, but not their spouses. Too many men will lay down their life for their ministries and pastors and churches, but not their spouses. Once a woman feels protected and secure, she thrives. You see this, I joke all the time. If you ever see a, a guy with a really nice car and he gets out and he's as ugly as he possibly could be, but there's a drop-dead gorgeous girl gets out of the passenger seat, you think, well, how did that dude get her? You're like, he's He's rich. Well, he, he, he may have some money, but you know what that communicates to the, to the woman? Safety and security, which to her communicates honor. Or you may see her with some guy who, who's in a beat-up pinto, but he's got muscles galore, and he gets out, and she gets out, she's driving, and you're like, what, this dude's dumb as a rock? He, he can't get a job. He can't do anything. What? Well, he makes her feel safe and secure. So as a man, your number one job is to honor your wife by making her feel like she's number one, she's preferred, and she's safe and secure and provided for. When that is full, she will thrive. Ladies, your man wants to feel respected more than anything else. When a man feels respected, when his confidence is high, when he feels like he can conquer the world, when a woman is boosting his ego, when she's telling him, babe, you're the best preacher I've ever seen. Now, I know that's a lie. But it makes me feel good. I feel like, babe, I'll do whatever you need me to do. <laughs> like when your husband, it, but what happens is that the default is we do the opposite. As men, instead of honoring our wife, making her feel safe and secure, we're flighty and we tend to come and go and disappear rather than make her feel secure. And for women, once we get upset or frustrated, instead of building our man up, we try to tear our man down and turn him down is like putting a hole in the bottom of that bucket that just drains him. And once he's drained, he doesn't feel like he can provide. He doesn't feel like he can take care of you. He doesn't feel like he can give you safety. And then the marriage starts to crumble. So the, the point would be this. Men, honor your wives. Make her feel like she's the most important person in your life. Make her feel like you would die to provide for her and make her feel secure. And then women, boost up your man's ego. If he has three hairs left on his head, those are the best looking three hairs I've ever seen. Number two, the second part would be make sure your marriage is full of communication. So honor and respect, but then make sure your marriage stays full with communication. Because where there's a lack of communication, imagination flows. What that means is when your communication pot or tank gets empty, people start wondering, if you're not telling, if you're like one of those good old rednecks who says things, well, I told my wife I loved her the day I got married, and if it changes, I'll let her know. No. You know what she's thinking? She's thinking, I don't know if he loves me or not. The man loves, I've seen this a thousand times. Husband and wife, they love each other. They want to be with each other but they're empty of all communication. So they're wondering 
They're imagining every other scenario. I don't know how he feels about me. He doesn't talk to me. He doesn't share. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know what's going on. And there's conflict and all this stuff going on. And it's not even real conflict. It's just it's empty of communication, which is a very simple fix because we all communicate every day at work. We communicate on social media. We communicate with friends. But we very seldom communicate with our spouses. And communication is the lifeline of every single relationship. Like it cannot flourish without proper communication. Uh, one person said this way, there's five levels of communication in a marriage. Level one is hallway talk, meaning, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? That's, that's where most marriages are, level one. Hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm, I'm going. Yeah, I'm good. Level two is reporter talk. Just give me the facts. This is where every man in the room wants to be and stay. I don't need all the others. Just tell me what you want me to know. Tell me what you want me to do. And then that's it. I got three minute windows of ADHD to work with. Level three, intellectual talk. Do you want to know what I think? So now we're starting to get deeper. So one is surface level. Two is kind of functional. This third one is, how are you thinking? What are you, what are you thinking about? Like, when, when you think about me, what do you think about? When you think about our marriage, what do you think? When you think about our how do you think about what the pastor said? How do you think about our marriage? How do you see the world? It's, it's, it's getting deeper. Level four is emotional talk. Let me tell you how I feel. And, and I'll, I'll admit this. Most men, we say, just get you a girlfriend and let her talk to you about that. Because I don't know how to do it. It took me 35 years to understand my feelings and emotions as a man. But if you can't communicate how you feel, your spouse can never help you or understand how you feel. And they will wonder in their imagination because the communication is empty. You have to communicate. Um, I, I feel depressed. I feel like our marriage is going in the wrong direction. I, I feel like I'm just not happy. I feel unsatisfied. I, I, I feel like I, and you go the other way. I feel like I love you. I feel like I love you more now than I loved you before. Like you have to communicate your emotions if we're going to have an emotional connection. And level five is even deeper than that. Level five is a loving, genuine talk, or let's be honest. I'd call this the spiritual conversation. Meaning we start having talks that affect your soul and your spirit instead of just your mind and your heart. I mean, Toy and I have these deep conversations about God, about our kids, about our kids' purpose, about our fears, about our dreams, about our families. Like, you should communicate on some level on each one of these levels. Each one of these could be a bucket themselves. And if they were, how are you communicating in your marriage? Is it empty of communication or is it full? And to help you, communication must be intentional, consistent, open, and respectful intentional, consistent, open, and respectful. It has to be intentional and consistent, meaning you have to make time to listen and talk every single day. Communication does not happen by default. You have to be intentional and consistent. I, I see Toya every morning. I kiss her before I leave the house. I call her at least two or three times a day just to check in to see how she's doing and to communicate any changes maybe going on in her life or my life. You have to listen, though, more than you talk. Communication is not about transferring information. It's about getting on the same page. Two, you must be open. Don't sweep stuff under the rug. 
You know what happens when you start sweeping stuff under the rug? Remember all the movies, cartoons, people sweep stuff under the rug when, when guests come over, there's this big mound in the middle of the rug. Like everybody can see it, but you're pretending like it's not there. When you sweep conflict or issues under the rug in your marriage, your spouse knows it's there, you know it's there, just neither one of you are willing to clean it up. It's almost like RJ's room. We tell RJ, clean your room. We go up there, it looks clean, but it don't smell clean because he just took everything and hid it somewhere else. So if you're going to do the work to hide it, why don't you do the work to resolve it? Like if you can do all the work of hiding your marriage issues from your mama and them, your daddy and them, your in-laws and them, your friends and them, if you can do all this work, why wouldn't you do just half the work and just resolve the issue instead of hiding it? And it's not hard. You can call the church. We can get you to counseling and therapy. Well, I don't want to do that, Pastor. Well, why? I don't want people knowing my stuff. Oh, so you don't want us to know your stuff, but then we're going to see on Facebook when you're divorced, your relationship status is separated. So you'd rather the whole world know than one person who can help you know, and therefore you never resolve the dirt in your marriage. And then three, you have to be respectful of each other. Don't attack each other when you communicate. Use I instead of you. Nine times out of ten in marriage counseling, half the problems are communication, and the communication problem is they don't communicate, they just attack each other. Well, she doesn't do this, or she does that. Well, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, and say, hey, I've messed up, and I realize I haven't been the, the husband I could be. I want to learn to be better. How can I be a better husband? Or, hey, I realized, and I, I called you the other day, I didn't speak to you the way I should have spoke to you. Hey, I messed up. Can we, can we talk about this? See, if you use the word I, you automatically disarm whoever you're talking with, and if you're going to fill up the tank, you have to make sure you're communicating from your point of view, not the other person's point of view. The third pot to keep full is keep your marriage full of trust. Keep your marriage full of trust. And if you're not communicating, it's going to get empty very quickly of trust. I heard one person say, trust is the greatest proof of love there is. Meaning when I love somebody, I'll give them reasons to trust me. When I don't love somebody, I'll give them reasons to not just trust me. And in our day and age, where there's so many opportunities to give people reasons to not trust each other, you have to work overtime to give people reasons to trust you. What that means is social media is not a place that builds trust. Social media is not a place where you give your spouse reasons to trust you. Because it dies when you start giving reasons to distrust. Trust is almost like the car mentality. Again, when, when a marriage runs out of trust, it's just like a car runs out of gas. You can stay in that thing as long as you want to, but it ain't going nowhere. And there's a whole lot of marriages where the husband and wife live at the same house. Sometimes they sleep in the same bed. They come to church together, but their marriage has been stuck somewhere five years ago because trust was broken and neither one of them are moving forward. And if you're going to have a marriage that God can bless, trust has to be full. And two of the building blocks of trust are this simple. Be accountable and be transparent. That's simple. Be accountable and be transparent. I have tons of accountability in my life, but I have tons of transparency in my life. Me and Toy have this thing we learned from a, a youth evangelist years ago. 
where he was talking about kids dealing with lust and everything else. And he said, I tell my wife that if I see somebody who's very attractive, I let her know ahead of time. Like they're walking through the mall and they say, hey, that's a really pretty girl. She said, oh, okay. He said, what I learned is if I'm transparent and if I get that out of my mind to my wife, now there's accountability with it. I'm not going to dwell on that thought anymore. So me and Toy instituted that, and I'll say, hey, she's a really pretty lady. I don't say, man, that girl's hot, bro. Like, I don't post, like, it's, it's, a, it's a healthy thing for me to get it out, to be transparent with her, because we're all visual people, to let her know, hey, I see this, but now I'm giving it over to you. So there's transparency. She can go through my phone anytime she wants to. She can go through Facebook messages. She can go through text messages. She can go through email. She can go through Instagram. She can go through it all. I'm not, we don't delete anything from our phones. It's all open and transparent. I've heard people say, well, yeah, but it's my phone. That's people do what I want to. No, no, you're one, homie. Like, and if you won't allow your spouse to go through your phone, like you're obviously hiding something from your other half. And if you're hiding something from your other half, you can never become one with each other. Like, it doesn't hurt you to have transparency. Then be accountable. Like, I'm accountable my account. If I'm going somewhere and something changes, I'll text Toy or call Toy, hey, babe, I'm supposed to be going to, to Birmingham to a hospital, but I'm actually going to Huntsville because something changed. I'm accountable. She should never have to look at Life 360 and say, oh, he told me he was going to Birmingham. But this cheater's going to Huntsville. <laughs> right? If, if there's no accountability, imagination jumps in. And it takes over, and then tr distrust is built instead of trust. Or social media comes into play. Somebody messages you something inappropriate, and instead of you letting your wife know, hey, so-and-so from high school, my ex-girlfriend messaged me something, da -da -da, asking how the kids were, instead of saying, oh, well, if my wife finds this, uh, she's going to kill me. I'll delete this. That makes it 10 times worse, because now it's not just a shady chick. Now she can't trust you. I'd rather hate the girl and trust me. And I'd be like, hey, babe, so-and-so from high school, send me this message on Facebook. I want you to know. And she'd be like, you better unfriend her or I'll kill her. Right? There's accountability there. Why? Trust in my marriage is more important than any friendship I have. And if it's not, we go back to pot one, that you don't honor your wife, you honor your girls or your boys more than you honor your spouse. If you honor your spouse, you'll make sure your trust stays as full as it possibly can. The third one, or the fourth one is this, keep your marriage full of, or third, full of friendship. Keep it full of friendship. McLaughlin said this, a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. Like being married means falling in love over and over and over again, meaning you have to keep refilling the friendship, and the love in your marriage. If you think you'll get married 30 years ago, get it filled up one time, and that's going to last you for 50 years, you are badly mistaken. You have to fall in love over and over again with the same person. This should be easy. We all have a culture of falling in love is this ecstatic, passionate, amazing thing that happens. Just think how much more amazing that could be if you put as much effort in falling in love with your spouse again as you did all your ex-girlfriends again. Like, and it's easy. Like, and as you age, you'll, you'll have different spouses with the same spouse. Like, Toya's not the same person she was now when she was 18 when we met. 
There's probably two or three revisions of her that keeps getting better and better like a fine wine. See, women age like fine wine. Men age like milk. (laughs) She gets better. I get fatter and uglier. But men and women, like, so when you're married, if you've been married 20 years, you've probably had two or three adaptations of each other. So you have to relearn each other, redate each other, and fall in love all over again. That means date your spouse. Date your spouse. You don't have to be religious and, and every Friday night is our day night. If you can do that, that's great. But just take time to prefer your spouse and get to know them all over again. If you have young kids, this is more important because you're both scattered all over the place. Young moms deal with the, the chaos of giving their lives to young kids. They don't have any adult conversation. The best thing you can do as a husband is just take your wife out and let her have an adult conversation. Get to know her all over again. In dating, I've heard people say, well, I, I date my wife, but she don't do anything I like to do. Yeah, dummy, do something she wants to do. Like, Toya loves horseback riding. I despise it. I'm six foot three, I'm a six foot four. I'm usually bigger than the horse is. My feet are dragging. It's hot. It's sweaty. They have four wheelers and all-terrain vehicles for this junk. Like, but she wants to ride a horse. So you know what we do? We ride horses. You know why? We can spend the whole day together. She loves every single moment of it, and I love seeing her enjoy life. And dating is nothing more than enjoying each other's company and enjoying life together. Date each other. Friendship. Your wife should be your best friend. Your husband should be your best friend. When something good happens, they should be the first one you call. When something bad happens, they should be the first one you call. They should be before anything else. Number five, keep your marriage full of intimacy. Keep your intimacy tank full. God created marriage, husbands and wives, to be attracted to one another and intimate with one another. Like he created us for that purpose. And what happens many times when intimacy is missing, or, uh, physically or emotionally, and it gets empty, people think the marriage is empty. And your marriage may not be empty, just as one particular pot may be missing. When you think about it, you can't be intimate or attracted to anybody else but your spouse. And so if you're not intimate and attracted with them, you're hindering an entire gift God has given marriage to have. And in church, while we get weird when we start talking about sex in church, if we don't talk about it in church, I promise you, they're talking about it at school, they're talking about it on TikTok, they're talking about it on Facebook, they're talking about it on Snapchat, everywhere else, and they're preaching a false message. God created intimacy between a husband and a wife that are married. And when it happens within the confines of marriage, it is the greatest gift a marriage can have. When it happens outside of a marriage, it is the greatest curse people can put on themselves. It tears your heart up. It tears your emotions up. It tears your mind up. It tears you up from the inside out. But if we don't preach the full message of, of intimacy, if we don't preach this is a blessing, this is a gift, this is a pleasure within the confines of God's way, People will go search for it outside of God's way. Because sex and marriage is God's way to experience intimacy, oneness, and pleasure. Intimacy, oneness, and pleasure. When it's missing, when that tank gets empty, you don't feel intimate emotionally as much as you used to. When you 
get empty, that oneness starts to get some obstacles or some things in between the two of you. You're no longer one, you're two. And when the pleasure decreases in a marriage, people will start looking for pleasure outside of the marriage, which is sinful. And so you have to realize that as husbands and wives, that one, men, this is from Gary Chapman, who wrote the Five Love Languages, Covenant Marriage, a bunch of books. He said, men are biologically created and designed for sexual pleasure every 72 hours. Brothers, you should give me an amen for that. That's science. Females are created to never want to have physical intimacy with somebody else. They desire emotional intimacy. There's already an obstacle there. So in order to get rid of that obstacle, you have to communicate and realize both of you have desires that can only be fulfilled within marriage. Men have sexual desires that can only be fulfilled in marriage. And women have emotional desires that can only be fulfilled in marriage. When both are getting what they need, there's oneness, pleasure, and unity. When it's lacking, division comes into play. you got to know that men are visually stimulated. Men are visual people. Images mess with us. That's why porn is such a huge deal. It affects men in the way God created them to be affected. And so men are attracted sexually to their wives visually. Women are not. They're attracted emotionally. Well, can we just, can we just talk? No. Like when you realize God doesn't give us a standard of beauty in the church. The Bible gives us no standard of beauty. The world tries to give us one. But God doesn't give us a standard of beauty. He gives us a spouse and says, this is your standard of beauty now. Meaning, if you are into, were into blonde-headed girls and your wife is red-headed, guess what? Your standard of beauty is now red-headed girls. And as time ages, if your wife is 70, now 70-year-olds are now what you're attracted. Your standard of beauty changes as your wife changes. You can't uphold your standard to what she was when 30 years ago. And what happens is we realize that that the Toya, her standard of beauty is now chicken leg, pot belly, balding, skinny jean wearing people. She can't change that. She has to live with it. Guys, this is more important for us. What that means is quit comparing your spouse to the images of the world that are an unfair standard when God has already given you a standard to apply it to. It also means, ladies and guys, that if you know your husbands are visually stimulated, they're image-based people, both of you don't let yourselves go just to punish. I know spouses that let themselves go to punish their husbands. And I heard the husband say, well, you know, I'm just not attracted to her like I used to be. Dude, you have more hair in your ears than you do on your head. Like, that's not fair. Know that it's both of your jobs to make sure you keep the tank full. And number six, keep your marriage full of forgiveness. Keep your marriage full of forgiveness. But you have to make sure it stays full to the brim because if it gets empty, it's very possibly over. And what happens is one party or the other so many times is the forgiving arm of the relationship. One person messes up, they mess up, 
they mess up, and the wife, I forgave him, I forgive him, I love him, I'm staying with him, I forgive him, I forgive him. At some point, though, it gets empty. And so if you're not pouring back into that, then at some point, it gets dry. When it gets dry, there's nothing left for God to bless. One person said, there's no love without forgiveness, and there's no forgiveness without love. Robert Quillen said this way, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. I mean, if you want to have a happy marriage, be good at forgiving one another. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Meaning you're never more like Jesus than when you're forgiving somebody, especially somebody you're one with. Because as you forgive your spouse, you're actually forgiving yourself. As you forgive your spouse, you're actually filling up the marriage thing because she will have to forgive you at some point as well. So as you fill it up, you can pour it. So be good at saying these three things. I love you. I'm sorry. And I forgive you. I love you every single day. Every single day your spouse should hear you say, I love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how I made you feel. I'm sorry overlooked you. I'm sorry I did this, and I forgive you. I love you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. If those three things are there, you're filling that up, and I promise you, you may go through some storms in your marriage, but you'll survive the storms in your marriage. And last but not least, when you see Jesus invited to this marriage, as they filled up the natural, Jesus turned the natural into supernatural. So as you can fill up these six pots with the natural things, the communication, the trust, the honor, respect, the friendship, the intimacy, the forgiveness, those are natural things. But as you put them naturally, God can do the supernatural. But he has to be invited to your marriage. You have to give him something to work with. And what's amazing is, in here, it says he saved the best for last. Just because you go through a bad spot in your marriage doesn't mean it's over. It may mean that God's going to do something new in your marriage. Like, just because it seems like joy is right out, it doesn't mean God is a God who saves the best for last. That means there's always hope, no matter how bleak or how bad it looks. No matter how empty it feels, if you fill something up and give it to God, He can bless it and turn it around. Too many people give up too quick on their marriage. They give up too quick because they think it's over, and it's not over, it's just empty. Give God something to work with. It is not complicated, it is not hard, it just takes a little bit of effort to reach down and scoop that water out and give God something to bless. Because the world is watching. When you realize the divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in the world, there's a problem. When you see our children are watching us to see how we love our spouses, to see what their model of marriage is going to be, we have to put as much effort in. The greatest ministry you have is sitting right next to you. And when you take care of that and handle that correctly, God can bless your kids, your grandkids, your business. Everything flows around you. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. In a minute, at the end of service, we'll have the prayer partners come up. And this is one of those moments to not sweep things under the rug. This is not a counseling thing. This is, the, this is an opportunity to ask God to, to bless some things in your marriage, to turn them around, to invite Jesus into your marriage. And so at the end of service, they'll be down here. You can come up and just say, hey, we just need, we just need God to move in our marriage. 
I'm telling you, you'll get more movement out of that than you will sweeping things under the rug. There's something that happens when husband and wives agree in prayer for change. Father, we thank you. For everybody in this room and online, we thank you for every married couple, every single person. And right now, Father, we just pray that you give them the encouragement and the strength to fill up the pots of their marriage. And Father, as they fill them up to the brim, as they begin to overflow, I pray that you speak supernatural blessing over these marriages to turn it into new joy, new hope, new love, and new life within their marriages. Father, we're praying right now for marriages to be restored. Father, we're praying for those who've been sweeping things under the rug to clean out the obstacles of the marriage so they can have a new marriage with the same exact spouse. Father, we're praying for the church to be a refuge and a haven for marriages to be strong and healthy and bold and supernatural. We're praying for marriages to be a witness and an example and a model for the world to see what it looks like when two God-fearing, God-loving people come together in covenant, what you can do through them. So we're praying for every single marriage. We're praying you have your way in and through them. Father, they, they open up vessels for you to pour into. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said.